I think the most important thing, if you want to talk about giving your child a tool to get through separation successfully, would be having clear and concrete routines in general that help your child feel a sense of trust in you as an authority figure. As summer fades, feelings of stress and anxiety can emerge for those of us who are about to start school for the first time. Oh, and our kids could be nervous about this too. But in all seriousness, transitions are hard and navigating the transition to preschool can be a challenge for parents and kids alike. Joining me today to help support and guide parents is Meredith Gary. Meredith is the co-director of Downtown Little School. She's author of the children's book, Sometimes You Get What You Want, and she has 28 years of experience working with young children and their parents. So whether you're feeling anxious about separation at drop-off, helping your child feel comfortable in a new environment, or maybe trying to decipher whether or not they're ready for this big step, this episode will cover all of this and more. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. I am so excited to welcome today to the podcast, Meredith Gary. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk with you today. I think um, one of the reasons why I was so excited about this episode is because I'm a parent. I've got two kids. Um, Both have been in school since they were very young. I did I mean, I'm a working mom, so my kids went to daycare when they were five months old, respectively, each of them. Um, and I think it's hard its hard to send your kids to school no matter what age. And, you know, you being so, you know, experienced in supporting kids, but also supporting parents, because kids going to school is really just as big of a transition for the parents as it is for the kids. Yeah, it really is. And I think if it... Any good preschool is going to recognize that, that this is that separation has two halves to it, the child and the parent, um, and be able to support both. You're not going to feel if you're not comfortable leaving your child, your child is not going to be comfortable having you go. So I think the first thing for first goal for you is to establish a sense of trust in the environment, in the school that you've chosen, in the people that run it, and then communicate that feeling of trust to your child. And I think step one for most children is going to be connecting with a teacher in that classroom as the first thing. So when you're bringing your child to school and it's the separation or phase in period and you're able to be there in the classroom, I would sit back as much as you can, bring a book, bring something to read and let your child connect with an adult in the room um, and feel, if you can, joy and pleasure in that connection because the joy you feel will be communicated to your child. Yes. I think that's actually a really good point. You know, like this idea that, okay, so we, what we're talking about going to preschool, right? You are the co-director of the downtown little school. Like you work with, how old are the kids at the downtown little school? Uh, so they're ages two to five. And so most of our children who are starting school for the first time are either two-year-olds or three-year-olds. 
And maybe share a little bit with our audience, like how you got into this work and like what your story is like getting into into all of this? Sure. Um, so I took the, the, when most people take a semester abroad in college, I took, um, what was called an urban education semester and actually came to New York city, worked in a public school and took some classes at Bank Street College, which is a graduate school of education, Upper West Side. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree, I came back to New York and got my master's at Bank Street. I was really quite hooked. Um, Then my first real early childhood job was at a school called Pace Little School, which was part of Pace University. And what was great about that job in terms of my own professional development was that we were working with children, we were working with parents, and we were working with student teachers. So I had to sort of articulate a philosophy and way of doing things that kind of resonated for all three of those groups. It was really a terrific learning experience for me. Um, So that was kind of the foundation. And Kate Delacourt, who was the director of the Pace Little School, and I are now co-directors of the Downtown Little School, which is what Pace Little School became when we uh, moved out of Pace. So that's kind of the basics of my bio. But for me, I believe in play-based education. Um, I believe in not starting academics too early. And I believe in the importance of social and emotional development for academic success. Because I think I say this to parents all the time. If your child gets to kindergarten and they don't know all their lowercase letters, the teacher is going to feel really prepared and ready to help them learn what those letters are. But if your child gets to kindergarten, 26, 28 kids and one teacher and has trouble separating, um, is afraid of conflict, uh, feels nervous in the face of challenge, struggles with following routines, all of these things are going to get in their way and be much harder for a teacher to deal with in a one-on-one way. And so that's the kind of stuff that we really want to support in preschool. That's so, I'm so aligned with the way I view childhood. I'm so, like, I love how you articulate that. And I think it's very reassuring for parents to hear an educator, you know, with your level of experience, tell them it's not about the ABCs. Yes. I really, yes. <laughs> it's not about the ABCs. It's not. They'll learn it. They're not yeah. going to not learn that. Yeah. But they might miss the other. I think that social emotional piece is the bedrock of yeah. learning academic concepts later on. Yes. And development is is real. I know I, you know, of course it's real, but I think like if we look at something like walking, everybody knows that children are going to walk maybe at 11 months if you're an early walker, 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe 16, 17 months if you're a late walker. Everybody kind of accepts that there's this range and that that's developmental, that it's going to be unique for each kid. Mm-hmm. And nobody who doesn't have a 10-month-old who's walking is panicking. They're just figuring, I don't know, they need another couple of months, right? And by the time children are two, no one even knows who was the early walker and who was the late walker. They sort of pass that developmental milestone and then, you know, you've got a bunch of kids who all look the same. And you can't push it. Like if I started a school and I was like, I have a school where I'm going to teach six-month-olds to walk, they would all fail, right? And I would just have a bunch of really anxious and upset parents. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what happens when you start to push academics too early. You're you're putting a skill onto someone who developmentally is not able to really own it. And I think that's hard because it starts to make parents feel bad. It starts to make children feel bad when really if you look at it as a 
a developmental thing that happens along a continuum, you feel much less pressure. If you're like, oh, children learn to read sometime between four and seven. Okay. That feels so much more relaxing than I hope they'll read, learn to read at two so that we don't have to worry about it later. Right. That just mm-hmm. is like trying to teach somebody to walk. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I work with parents in a totally different like zone, right? Like they're coming to me for, for more mental health issues and behavioral concerns. But a lot of times, a lot of my work is helping parents adjust their expectations to be more developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, and it's not their fault that they have de- developmentally inappropriate expectations. I think it's a product of our society. And a lot of it comes from the education system where there is this pressure for children to have this academic achievement far before they're cognitively ready for it, but far before they're emotionally and social emotionally ready for it. Like we need to teach regulation. We need to teach a set, like help foster a sense of safety and connectedness to others before some of these educational constructs can even begin to take hold because they require to learn your ABCs, to learn math. You need to be able to sit still. You need to be able to listen actively. You need to be able to um, focus for long periods of time. You need to be able to inhibit impulse. Like you, like there's, there's a lot of emotional and social emotional learning that ta- that has to take hold before you can get to those. Like I hate this whole kindergarten is the new first grade. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then let me just, if I can add to regulation and the other list of skills that you just said, I would talk about symbolizing. You know, early symbolic play is important for not only for, let me, let me talk about academics in a second, but when you have a child, for example, with a transitional object, um, that object symbolizes something for them. It symbolizes something emotional. Sometimes a transitional object helps a child go to school if they can bring something from home and it helps them keep their parent in mind and a sense of, gives them an emotional sort of core sense of comfort. And What symbolizing evolves into, and when we talk about symbolic play, you know, I'm pretending this is a cup, I'm pretending that this block is a cell phone, Um, that's what reading eventually is, right? I mean, all of letters are a symbol, and so you see the words S-T-O-P, and you have to understand that that symbolizes stop, that that means a word. And so the first step is understanding the idea of symbols, right, and using them on a daily basis, and that's what children do when they're playing and preschool. And I have to say, yesterday I was watching this little girl. She was pretending to be the mom and and one of the kids in her class was pretending to be her kid. And she was walking him through the steps of her going to work. She's like, I'm going to go to work now. And when I tell you I'm going to go to work, I want you to cry. Okay. And you tell me not to go. And then he sort of said, don't go, mommy, don't go. And she said, okay, well, you know, I need to go because I have to, but I'm going to come home and I'm going to bring you a present when I, right? And so she acted through the entire thing that probably she herself experienced that morning when her parent went to work. And I'm like, you can't watch this and not understand how important it is, how much she was soothing herself and making sense of her world by going through this little dramatic play sequence. Yes. And that's why I think that play-based learning, like, you know, it's obviously super important and critical, but I think it gets cut short in a lot of academic programs because it gets booted out to make space for worksheets and handouts and getting them ready for standardized tests, which, it, you know, is a whole other thing that I could get on a soapbox about. But like, you know, we were 
we're, we throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit when we do that, when we, we put play at the bottom of the to-do list because it's just extra right. when in fact it's everything. I really agree. And I think that's so undermining to what children are trying to sort of accomplish through their play, right? They have a job to do. And I think we undermine it when we don't let them do it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we could have a whole episode all about this. And I think I'd like to. But I also wanted to talk about like, you know, kids going to school for the first time and what that, that obviously it could be hard for kids to make that transition. It's also really hard for parents to make that transition, sometimes more so, right? And like, you know, I think I know your answer to this, but like, how do we help a kid get prepared for preschool? Um, well, I, I don't like believe in prepping, obviously, definitely not prepping in terms of academics. And I, sometimes one question I get is, should I prep them by leaving them? In other words, by leaving them with a nanny or by doing some kind of a drop-off class. And even that, you know, if, if you're doing that for some other reason, like the class is going to be fun, sure. But I don't think that any kind of prep is necessary, even for a child who's just been home with a parent all the time, which I know during COVID has been true for a lot of people. Um, I think the most important thing, if, if, if you want to talk about giving your child a tool to get through separation successfully, would be having clear and concrete routines in general that help your child feel a sense of trust in you as an authority figure. I can talk about what I mean by that. If you say to your child, it's in a few minutes, we're going to leave the playground and then a few minutes pass and you take your child by the hand and you walk out. That's a very simple thing, but what that helps your child know is, oh, when she says it, she means it. When she says something is going to happen, this thing does happen. When she warns me to expect something, my the expectation occurs. Even for a two-year-old, that it can become a very internalized feeling. And I think that's important because what's going to happen at school is what? You're going to say to your child, I'm going to sit here for a little while and then I'm going to go. Your teacher is going to be here to take care of you and then I'm going to come back right? It's another version of that, which is let me help you. Let me explain to you with clarity what's going to happen and how this is going to be okay. And you want your child to believe that. So if if those kinds of small routines or limits or transitions are challenging, I would say that's one thing you could do if you're thinking about prep is see if you can get a handle on some of those things um, before school begins so that your child will feel ready emotionally. Yeah. And I think that's particularly challenging for parents who struggle with that conviction, you know, like whether it's a drop off and they're wavering and wavering and wavering at the door, or it's just in the house when they say, you know, after this, we're going to, we're going to do this now. Um, you know, after you're done coloring, we're going to go and have dinner in the kitchen Mm -hmm. or after this show is over, we're going to turn off the TV and go, you know, get ready for whatever. Um, And then our kid gets upset because they don't want to do that transition. And then we get anxious or we get flustered or we get mad or we, or we placate because we waffle in the face of their distress because we're not, their distress is uncomfortable. It's, it's, it can throw us. And so I think being able to say to ourselves in that moment, it's okay for them to be distressed. It's okay for them to protest. They're not doing anything wrong by communicating to me that they don't like this plan and it's still my job to hold that frame. Yes. And so I can validate their experience. Ugh, you really don't want to turn off the TV right now. It's hard to stop something that feels good. And I'm going to turn the TV off and here we go. Yep. Um, 
And I think that's very similar, I would imagine, with like this, the plan for drop off, right? Like it's hard. Yeah. And it can happen. It happens. The, and just as you say, narrating their feelings is helpful. Speaking with clarity and following through is helpful for sure. Um, and I also think that there, it, it's hard for parents. Yes, it's hard to see your child in distress. I also think there can sometimes be a temptation to want your child to buy into your idea. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And they're so little. This is where the developmental piece comes in. Kids these days, I mean, I know they're very articulate. Sometimes kids have these vocabularies, which I'm like, this two-year-old has as big a vocabulary as I have, but they are still little. They're still not as smart as we are or as experienced as we are. And they don't always... Um, understand the big picture. So even though little kids often act like they want to be in charge, and you know we could talk about all the developmental reasons for that, I don't think they truly do want to be in charge. I think they feel much better when an adult is in charge. And when we're talking about starting school, they have no framework for understanding what school means, what all this stuff is about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time we tell kids to go wash their hands all as a group, think about how foreign that feels. They've never washed hands with 10 other people in a bathroom with several toilets who are all little, right? It's a very strange thing. So they feel much better and adjust much more easily when they have a sense that the adults are in charge. So I think when parents are able, again, through separation and even afterwards to say you're at school now, you know, I think school is good. Maybe you don't want to go today, but I know your teacher is going to help you and it's going to be okay. That feels much better to the child than saying, making them agree. Don't you love school? Um, what about all these times you've told me you like school? What about all your friends who you love at school? Sort of trying mm-hmm. to get them to agree that school is good, I think creates a lot of pressure for them as opposed to saying, I'm your parent and I know this is going to be okay. I yes. know people who are in charge of you. I think that's a really helpful distinction to give parents, right? Like, And I think you, this plays out in all other kinds of scenarios, much like we were saying, like this idea of like being sort of the confident, firm holder of the frame while being able to empathize and validate our child's feelings and maybe even their protest about the thing while still holding the frame, it's containing for a kid. That frame is, in fact, a container, and it's very comforting. And yes, I agree. A kid is going to show us and speak to us in a way that might implicate that they want the control and they want to be in charge. But that's like existentially terrifying for a child. And it's very anxiety provoking to feel more powerful than the person who's here to keep me safe. I know in my core that I'm dependent on you for survival. If you are less powerful than me, I'm pretty screwed. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, they want to assert their power and we can validate that wish. And we can say, I'm making this choice now and I know it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have a child who's um, you're struggling to get them out the door, they aren't putting their shoes on, they don't want to school go to school that day. I think it's much more helpful to say, well, you have to go to school. So this time I'll put your shoes on for you next time. I hope you'll put your shoes on yourself and out the door we go. That communicates confidence. It moves through what is a difficult moment um, as opposed to sort of joining in that feeling, well, why don't you want to go to school? Or if you don't put your shoes on, we can't go to school. All of that, I think, gives the child a lot of power that can feel scary. Yeah, totally. And one other thing I'll add that I do sometimes with my kids, because my kids 
my kids love school. They really, really do. They always have. They've adapted to it very well. Generally, like temperamentally, both my kids are kind of, um, they're, they, they take their time, but they're, they're in the grand scheme of things, pretty quick to warm up to new things. Um, but they'll say like, I don't want to go to school or I don't want to do this. And, you know, um, a little thing that I'll play around with them is to kind of build this concept of being able to tolerate multiple feelings at once is to say, I wonder if maybe this part of you right here and I'll, you know, touch their shoulder and be like, this part of you doesn't want to go to school right now. And maybe this part, and I'll grab their other elbow and I'll be like, this part really likes those blocks that you have over (laughs) in the corner. And this part of you, and I'll like wiggle their ear, be like, loves your teacher. And so just try, it's, it's playful. It's light. I'm not trying to get them to say, oh, you're right. I love my teacher. Oh, you're right. I love the blocks. You're right. Never mind. Here we go to school. I'm in a great mood about it. It's just to kind of hold space for the, the complexity of it. Yes. There is a part of you that doesn't want to go to school right now. I get that. And I know there's lots of parts of you that like this and that. And you don't have to be, I don't say all these words, but like basically I'm communicating like you don't have to be connected to all those parts of you in this very moment, A, for them to exist or B, for us to still go to school right now. Like that's the decision I'm making. And here we go. And Sometimes they kick and scream on the way to the car seat. They're pissed. <laughs> and that's yes. okay. I put my my daughter's socks and shoes on after she got buckled in today because she wasn't going to do it. And that was not a fight I wanted to deal with so or a hill I wanted to die on. So I was like, all right, don't wear your socks and shoes. I will put them on once you're buckled in. <laughs> and I can physically do that. Yeah. And a lot of times by the time they're buckled in, then they're ready for it, right? It's like the worst part is over. Yes. Oh my gosh. She put her socks on herself. Literally. She's like, no, I want to do it. I was like, fantastic. Here you go. And I was like, that's, that felt like a win to me, but like, you know, it was still a a big scramble in the morning and it was stressful. Um, but we went to school. We always (laughs) still go to school. Can we talk, can I segue for a second into, um, what kids say about school when they come home at the end of the day? Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) only because I think it's related, Um, which is a lot of times, I mean, whatever, this is true for me too. You know, you come home and you just talk about the worst parts of your day, right? Like, because you have to get them out, like Mm -hmm. all the annoying things that happen to you, you tell to whoever is at home with you. And I think sometimes when children come home with negative stories, that can feel really hard for a parent. Um, And especially if you've dropped a child off who hasn't been happy to be at school, oh boy, then it's like even worse to hear that someone didn't play with them or they didn't get a turn with something or, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there that even though that's something that happens at the end of the day, I think there's a connection between that and how your child feels coming into school. Because if you can hear those things as sort of a, a empathetic listener, but who doesn't like freak out or dive too much into a story, which may have only shades of truth in it because children are sort of not great reporters. I think that really helps because what you're saying to your child is that every day has its ups and downs. It's okay, right? Oh no, you didn't get a turn with that. I'm really sorry to hear that. Well, I hope, you know, tomorrow that you, you will get a turn. What else do you want to tell me, right? What that tells them is sure your school day is going to have disappointments in it and that's okay. And Now, usually once they get all the bad stuff off their chest, then they're ready to tell you all the good things that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think being able to hear those things helps you and helps your child so that when you're dropping off, you're not saying I'm dropping you off because everything that happens to you in the next three hours is going to be perfect and amazing and excellent. Right. I'm dropping you off because school's good. And of course, you know, you'll have your ups. Right. I think it's all part of a 
whole package. I agree. I think that's a really good point. And I, that also made me think of like a question that I hear all the time in the, in when we're talking about relationships with our kids and communication is, you know, when kids don't want to talk about school at the end of the day, when you get home and you're like, how was school? And they're like, "Mm." (laughs) or mom, I don't want to talk about it. Or it was fine. Or I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Like, what are ways that we can engage our kids in conversations about school, you know, that, that open it up a bit more? I think some of it depends on the age. I have to say that for two-year-olds, especially like our two-year-olds come half a day in the morning. And if you're the a parent and you pick up after that half day, then I think they probably will have stories to tell. But if you, for example, have a caregiver pick up and you see your child that evening, honestly, what happened to them that morning may feel very distant, especially since so many things have intervened. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I wouldn't build up too much reporting about that given day. Sometimes they might remember, you know, you can connect it if if your te- if, the, if you know that Wednesday's cooking day in your child's school, then that might be a place to start because that will kind of jog their memory. But otherwise, I don't feel like you can have put too much pressure. Yeah. Um, older children who don't like to talk about school, four-year-olds and five-year-olds, I have found a lot of success asking them um, to tell you the worst thing that happened to them that day. Honestly, mm-hmm. what's the worst thing that happened to you today? Did you was did anything upset you today? Because a lot of times that's what they want to say, and. It, that will get them started. Oh, yeah, because this happened and that happened. And then suddenly you'll get the stories from the day. It's like a cork. You un- yeah. work out and the rest of the stuff comes through. Which I think is helpful to remember your first set of skills around yeah. that too, which is to not then co- just dive in and be like, oh, gosh, I can't believe that happened. This is That's horrible. <laughs> but to be like, to empathize, to say, oh, that sounds tough. Mm-hmm. And what else? Then what? Yeah. Then what? And sometimes the older children will will understand what's funny about having had you ask what the worst thing is that day, you know, and the right. worst thing, will, you know, they'll be like, the worst thing is the lunch you packed me, ha, huh? and then, <laughs> you know, and then that, but it, it yeah. yeah, and it's a little, it's a little, um, it kind of throws them off their game a little bit because they're expecting mm-hmm. you to be like, what was the best thing or what happened or I want to hear the good stories and then they, you're, you go, you go in with that negative spot and they're like, what? Like, right. yeah. oh, I wasn't expecting you to say that and then that. You've ca- you've captured their attention a little yes. bit. You've yeah. Yeah. you've engaged them. Mm-hmm. I often will like do very specific questions too, like versus like how was school? Mm. That's really big. That's a big question. It's hard to answer a big question. Like I like to drop anchors a little bit, like at least with my old my son's four and a half, and I'll be like, can you think of anything that like made you laugh mm-hmm. or you know did you did anyone share something with you at school today? Or (laughs) did you play a game that was fun? Or just being a little bit more specific and concrete or sometimes more open-ended, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what it, was there anything that like made, yeah. Anything new? That's a good one. Anything new today that you haven't seen before? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and I also sometimes just recognizing that kids don't want to talk the second they get home. (laughs) Like sometimes they need a minute. Mm-hmm. Like if I come home from a long day of work and my husband is like, tell me everything about work today. I'm like, I need a minute. Like, <laughs> I just want to like sit and like breathe and play and do something else. And so sometimes checking in later in the night, like in bath time yeah. or when you're reading a book, yeah. that can be a time when kids have more bandwidth to open up and they're feeling connected to you and want to talk versus a time when they're like, I just want to like 
do my thing right now. And I don't want to go back to the school I just left in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And some kids like having a real separation between home and school. You know, they feel like there's something about their school self that's like special that they like to keep over here and have their home self somewhere else. I definitely have seen kids like that too. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And like, now I know that we're, we're talking about like dropping off and supporting kids. And I think we're talking about, you know, every kid, you know, every kid struggles with this stuff sometimes. It's not like only some kids struggle with wanting to go to school. But I do think some kids have much more pronounced difficulty separating from parents and other kids, even in just completely normative populations, like not kids with like major anxiety disorders or trauma history, but just kids who have more separation anxiety, which separation anxiety is developmentally normative. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, yeah, like if you have, if you're dealing, what do you, how do you support parents who have kids who, who really, really, it's, it's tough. It's really tough to separate. Yeah. Um, we have done a bunch of different things. I mean, I think it always has to be individualized. I have to say, because obviously, right, like no kid's temperament is the same. No parent's sort of bandwidth is the same. But a few of the things we've tried is doing mini separations. We definitely do that where a parent goes away and comes back in a much shorter amount of time, you know, just gets a cup of coffee and comes back to sort of practice that feeling, which can sometimes it's, you know, it's like an exercise then. You're exercising a muscle and they, the parent goes for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. So it goes. Sometimes that really helps. Um, having very concrete routines for separation has helped a lot of kids. I remember a child who did the exact same puzzle with their parent every day at drop-off. Not a puzzle, that puzzle, because there was something about moving through that activity together that gave him kind of the time he needed to deal with the fact that he knew his was his father was gonna go so Mm. that's something that has been useful I think making sure that a child who feels who has separation anxiety has one teacher that they feel very connected with and taking off I think for a child for whom separation is work I think we have to take the rest of the burdens off of them the burdens to socialize even the burden to play at the beginning I can remember one little boy who the way we handled his separation is I had two little chairs set up sort of to the side of the room where there was no action going on. And he and I would sit there. His parents would say goodbye to him there at these two little chairs where there was nothing to do. And I would say, and then we'll wait. And when you're ready to play, then you'll get up. Because what his parents initially wanted him to do was to like set him up at the Play-Doh table or set him up at the easel doing something before they would go. But he couldn't mm-hmm. do anything while he was right. thinking about them going. So it, was much, yeah. so it was just much easier for him to sit just next to an adult, calmly have them go, wait. And it used to be sometimes five minutes. He would sort of look around the room and assess what was going and then get up. And that period of time then was shorter and shorter until he would just sort of bounce into the seat next to me and then bounce back up and go play. But he needed to have some of the expectations taken off of him so that he could just cope with separation. So those are just a few stories. I think that is profound. This idea that like when separation anxiety is really pressing, that we have to give child space to cope with just that one thing first Mm -hmm. and not have to then also contend with, you know, engagement Mm-hmm. or solving problems or any anything or even having fun, right? Mm-hmm. That, that they're, yeah. And it's really owning and permitting their distress, mm-hmm. which goes yeah. back to this idea that when we validate and name a kid's feelings 
and still keep a frame around it. Like he's still Mm -hmm. at school. We're not saying, oh, you can't handle this. We're going to take you home and try again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But to say, it's okay for you to be distressed. It's okay for you to sit here as long as you need. Mm -hmm. We're not putting any pressure on you. And I think that that's really powerful for the child and also helpful for the parents to know like, it's okay if he sits in that chair and cries for an hour, Mm -hmm. it would be okay. Yeah. And I have to say, (laughs) this little boy I'm talking about didn't even cry. The two chairs became so symbolic for him because it was like, oh, I'm going to sit there and Mary's going to sit next to me. Like it was like the plan was in place. And Mm -hmm. I think it was symbolic to the parent. Like, oh, we're going to leave him here, but a grown up is going to be sitting there. There's their two little chairs that that like put a lot of relief onto the whole situation, I think, for that particular family. Which really illustrates the profound, you know, importance of having a child-led approach Mm -hmm. um, and just an attunement. Like this, I, this feels so logical to me, the way you're describing handling separation anxiety. I, I know that, you know, a lot of schools probably do similar things. Not all schools do this. Like I'm, I'm also mindful of the fact that not, uh, not all teachers know how to do this. And a lot of times at drop off, you might see a teacher being like, don't cry. Everything's fine. Let's go play and just distract and Mm -hmm. move them out of that feeling really quickly. And I'm curious, like as a educator in this world, who's trained teachers, like Mm -hmm. where can teachers get, how do we, as parents find the school's that follow this particular model and have these particular values? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, of course, obviously, that can be one of the questions that you ask. And I think hearing, to, I mean, a word I would listen for would be individualized because I think there are kids who are ready to separate on day one. It's just not that big a deal. They walk in, Mm -hmm. they say bye to their parents, right? And those parents should not be made to go through a long process, which might, you see what I'm saying? So I think when you hear that a school says our separation process is individualized, that I would open my ears and listen for more because then you can feel comfortable that if your child is somebody who has it easy, you're going to go. And if your child has it hard, there's going to be people who are prepared to help you. So for sure, I think that's one thing. And then I also think any school that talks about valuing social and emotional development is going to think about separation first. I I really do. So I think if the conversation is all about academics, then to me, that raises a red flag. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, this idea that, you know, I think as parents, sometimes we're not that educated about what schools should be looking like looking like right i would not be surprised if i interviewed 100 parents of you know almost preschoolers and said what's the most important thing about preschool and i think a lot of them would say to learn the things that they need to know for kindergarten mm-hmm. and i think in that their language they're picturing academics yeah cuz there's so much pressure in our society to be ahead of the game on academics, Mm -hmm. to give your kid a jump start and to be, you know, enriching everything (laughs) from an academic, (laughs) academics lens versus enriching things. I believe in enrichment, but my definition of enrichment is maybe a bit, a bit different. It's more (laughs) play-based, but like, I, I don't know, like, I think, I don't know, this is a little bit like more philosophical, but like, 
I'm curious your thoughts on like the whole academics obsession that we have as a society, how that makes parents kind of ill-equipped to, to be educated consumers of preschools Mm -hmm. because they're looking for the wrong stuff. Yeah. Well, I think also because these things, and let me talk about social skills too, because I know a lot of parents will say the reason they're going to preschool is so that their kid can gain social skills. But this stuff we're talking about comes before that too. You can't get social skills if you can't feel comfortable at school and feel confident and feel okay that your parents have gone, right? That comes even before socializing and way before academics. That if you can start to think of these things as important in and of themselves and foundational to later school success, as opposed to thinking of them as kind of throwaways. You know, it's like, again, I was talking about walking before. It's like things like tummy time and crawling. We understand now, most of us, that those things build muscles, which are important for other stuff. You know, that that when you're when your three-month-old is picking their head up and pressing like this, this is important for them later in life. You don't think to yourself, oh, now they're walking, right? You just think these are the steps they go through. And I feel like for preschool, things like separating, following routines, learning how to solve problems, using how to communicate with other people, all these are foundational to academic success. So it's not like I'm poo-pooing reading and writing. I'm just thinking, let's make sure they're prepared for it with these things which aren't themselves on the surface academic, but which are foundational. Yes. Yes. I think that's so important. And I think going back to like, you want to talk about core foundational, like what mm-hmm. is it the most essence, what is it at in its most essential form, the V building block from which everything else gets built upon is safety. It's mm-hmm. security. And like, you know, we've talked a couple times about the importance of helping your child like connect to the teacher and when the separation is happening or when there's, you know, resistance to be able to help them find the safety in the teacher. I think really this, I mean, this podcast is called Securely Attached. Like it's all about that attachment. And, you know, basically your teacher is for all intents and purposes, um, a surrogate secure base, a surrogate <laughs> attachment figure. Um And so can can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's, I want to go a little bit, I think I want to emphasize that really for parents, like how do they support a child developing a secure attachment to the teacher who's going to be their their surrogate secure secure base so that they can do all the other stuff we want them to be able to do at school? Yeah. Um, So let me, can I tell a story? Yeah. Love stories. So we had a three-year-old come, this was many years ago, come to school mid-year having left another school after a bad experience. So he was already feeling, all, I think, a little worried about school and probably so were his parents. And he came running into the classroom and found this basket of Duplo, you know, those big Lego, and looked around to make sure that people saw this and dumped it out on the rug. Kind of like, what are you going to do now? Right? Mm -hmm. So... One of his teachers at the time came over and said, I'm going to help you pick these up here. You just do a couple and I'm going to do the rest with you. And at first he didn't want to. We wanted to go do something else. No, no, we're going to finish. We'll clean this up. I'm helping you and we'll put these in and then you'll go on, do something else. So he only did put like three away and the teacher put the rest away, but they did it together, put the basket away, moved on. The next day, rushing into the classroom, straight to the same basket of Duplo, look around, dump the basket. Same teacher, back again. Ah, this happened yesterday, but look, I'm going to help you again. Let's do this together. 
put these things away, right? And then we'll go on to do something else. This is a tiny story, maybe a boring story. Maybe it's more vivid when you remember it like I do. But it was so important to him for him to do something bad. I'm putting bad in mm-hmm. quotes if, I, if this is just audio. Do something bad and see what was going to happen to him in this new environment. And once he saw what happened, which was something very predictable, right? He had to clean it up. Nobody, you know, let him get away with it. But predictable, calm, consistent, supportive, helpful, a teacher nearby to help him do it, right? Then he had to do the same thing again. Okay, get the same reaction. And this was like fundamental to him feeling comfortable at school. So when we talk about becoming securely attached to a teacher, I think a big piece of it is having teachers who set predictable limits, who can remain calm in the face of difficult behaviors, because by this point, all of us have seen it all, right? It's hard Mm -hmm. to shock a preschool teacher. But to show the child that even though sometimes they have these huge feelings which feel uncomfortable, they have behaviors which are bad, um, they miss their parents, that the teachers are sort of this calm, predictable, consistent base that is there for them to help them contain. You talked about a frame to help be that frame while they're at school, I think is the most important thing. And some kids will just test that. They will test it. Yes. And that's it's so funny because like I – I think everything you just described is the same for parents, right? Like when, when we're talking about how can parents help their children feel securely attached to us, it's doing those exact same things. It's having these warm, confident, consistent responses to things, not having these hugely, wildly big, emotional, unpredictable reactions, but also seeing it requires us in order to do that is to see that behavior, that quote, bad behavior, not as as, you know, negative attention seeking or limit testing or acting out behaviors, I often describe them as connection seeking behaviors or most importantly, safety seeking behaviors. Like I think a kid dumping out a bucket of Duplos, checking out first to see that everyone's watching, dumping them out and looking for the response that has nothing to do with Duplos. Yeah, It has everything to do with how safe am I? Mm-hmm. who's going to react to this and how are they going to react? And I'm going to do it over and over and over again. And I might even do it in other ways mm-hmm. to test for any cracks in the foundation of this safety. Because I have to know, I have to go right up to the edge because I need to know that I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And so I think reframing you know, limit testing behaviors as safety testing behaviors gives us so much more empathy and so much more patience and and understands that like we are going to have to revisit this over and over and over again until this little person feels safe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's my job. Yeah. And I think another piece which is related to that is the balance of structure and freedom, which is something that we work hard to do right here at school and I think is can be tricky for parents to do at home, but which I really encourage people to think about because children do need choices, but they don't need, I think, quite as many choices as sometimes parents might feel tempted to give them. Yeah. So, for example, here at school, children are choosing where to play in the classroom, dramatic play or Play-Doh. They're choosing which child they might want to play with or if they want to play alone. These are all child-sized choices and those are enough. So there are a lot of things that are not up to children. So for example, when it's cleanup time, it's cleanup time. The adults say it's time to clean up, right? And everybody has to do it. That part is not 
I, I hate it when people say it's not a choice, but it's not a choice. Um, and I think that structure that goes around that freedom is very important. It's hard to enjoy your freedom if you're always looking around trying to figure out what the structures are that are going to keep you safe. Yeah. So we do have at school a very predictable school schedule, very predictable rules, predictable responses to different behaviors, uh, predictable answers. And I think having those encouraging parents have those same kinds of things at home um, can it is supportive of the school experience overall, I think, because it helps children feel like they can grow and develop and become a big kid and a school kid while still yeah. having this framework of safety around them of adults being in charge. Yes. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting because I, this makes me think of the fact that a lot of times parents will come to me and they'll be like, my kid is an angel at school. And the minute they get home, they're just out of control. They're totally melting down. They're pushing every single boundary. They're just being so difficult. And I don't know what to do. Like why? And one, I always reassure parents that like, that's the order we like to see things, right? <laughs> you want yeah. kids to be a little bit more held together at school because they, they understand that there's a difference and it's a different setting. And it's not this, these aren't, obviously we want our kids to feel like their teachers are their secure bases. And I also think that's why as you get more progressively through the school year, kids do tend to be a little bit more, they'll give their teachers a little bit more of a hard time because they're building that sense of safety with them. But our kids feel so safe with us. So they save their, their mess for us. They save their ugliest, messiest, most dysregulated selves for us because we're that safe. I can be a hot mess with you and <laughs> I know that you're not going to go anywhere. Um, and so one, I think it's very reassuring for parents to just know like this is kind of a healthy response, but two, you know, it also, we want to help minimize that. Like we don't want to just last forever. We just want to like be like, okay, this makes sense. And now what can I do about it? And one of the things I often tell parents is talk to your teachers, find out what, they're responding to your child, how they're responding to your child or what consequences or, or like natural logical consequences are happening when they do a behavior like that at school. Um, chances are it might not even, it may not be showing up at school or might be showing up in very small ways at school and the teacher's helping the child to move out, you know, to get out of that, that uncomfortable dysregulated space more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think Teachers are a great resource. Like find out what language teachers are using to set certain limits. Find out how teachers are responding to certain behaviors because mm -hmm. then you can share that language and it becomes familiar. The child hears it, the teacher say it, he can hear mom and dad say it too. And it can help him to feel like, oh, I, I, that cues my behavior. I know what, how to respond mm -hmm. when someone says that to me. Agreed. I agree with <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so... You know, we were, you talked about transitional objects before, um, which if anyone hasn't, isn't familiar with that, with that term, like a transitional object can be anything that like symbolizes a connection with the parent or with comfort, like a lovey or a stuffed mm -hmm. animal or a blankie, or maybe something that you can make with your parents to bring to school to like symbolize something to re just to help bridge that, that connection, bridge that gap of separation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I think some children not have a separation, have a transitional object just naturally. There's children who have a certain stuffed animal or blanket that they bring everywhere. And we definitely support children bringing those to school. Um, some children, I remember, we've, we've actually had several children who do what I like to call pack a bag, which is they have some little 
purse or something and they before they leave the house, they throw a couple things in it and bring that to school. I think just the idea of picking a few things some, for some children is really meaningful. Um, but we've also, we have family photos in the classroom. So every child has photos they can look at of their parents. And for children who seem to really like to carry those around, we turn them into a necklace. We just make a little laminated photo and put it on a piece of yarn around their neck so that they can still use their hands but have a family photo nearby. So there's a lot of different ways to look at a transitional object, but I think it's um, just a concrete way of reminding you that you still have home even when you're at school. Yeah. And like books can be like that. Can you make books and stuff like that too? Yeah. So we make a lot of homemade books for children to um, at school to deal with a whole range of issues, new baby, moving, um, something sad that happens, a pet dies. So these are all things that we make to help children sort of understand their experience through the medium of a book. And I recommend it to anybody. There actually um, is a book that's called, I believe, Homemade books to help kids cope. I might be getting that wrong, but there Mm -hmm. is a a 25, 30 year old book for parents if anyone wants to check that out. Um, And the book that I'm the author of, which is called Sometimes You Get What You Want, came from an actual homemade book that we made in the classroom for a child who, um, when he didn't get what he wanted, felt very much like he was flying to pieces. It was not just Mm -hmm. the usual, like, I'm mad, I'm upset, or I have a temper tantrum. I think he was super, super stressed at things not going his way. And so we made him a little book that, you know, sometimes you get to sit next to who you want to sit next to, and sometimes you don't, this kind of thing. It was very rhythmic. And then um, it uh, got published. So yeah, <laughs> sometimes we'll, you get what you want. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. We'll link to that in the show notes because I think there's a lot of parents who probably struggle with that exact experience with their kids when they get really frustrated when they don't get what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, like you said, it's that's a pretty developmentally normative thing. And then for some kids, it can be extra, extra, mm-hmm. extra hard. Yeah, it can feel really like it's like your core is disturbed. Um, and that is a feeling we never want children to have, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because like I've actually had a couple patients that I've worked with where I've said like, write this down, make a story about it. Um, cause I think telling the story, kids, kids stories are very, um, relatable to kids and it also helps it feel a little removed. So it's, you know, it's, it creates a little bit of space, mm-hmm. but it also helps them have this concrete thing that they can go back to and read. And you know how kids like to read the same book over and over and over and over and over. And I think, having a book that, that tells their story. Mm -hmm. Like I have a a patient who, um, their daughter is having a really hard time adjusting to a new sibling, like a very hard time adjusting to this new sibling. And we were talking and it became clear that one of the things that had happened when the brother was born was, um, mom, I I think someone, I can't remember if it was the daughter or the, someone got sick and, they had to separate. They had to like do a quarantine because um, of COVID or something. Um, and so even though they had prepared the girl for mom going to the hospital to have the new baby and then she'll be home, she didn't come home right away. And there was a longer separation than was anticipated. And this was not something that they came up, they came out coming to me right away with. It was something that we like hadn't thought of as a possible issue until we, it just came out. We're like, oh, Maybe this is part of why she's having such a hard time with 
the new sibling. And I think there ended up being two separations due to quarantine-like things, like kind of in rapid fire after the the brother was born. And so I said to them, I said, like, let's let's help her write this story, like help her make a story about this, tell the story of of the brother being born in her, but the, really the story of her becoming a big sister and include in that story the separations so that we can revisit it and revisit it and revisit it and process it and process it and process it until it becomes less internally just existing inside of her body as this like stress mm-hmm. yeah. and more it exists outside of me as this coherent narrative yeah. that I can go back to and make sense of. And I think coherent is the operative word too, because I think a lot of times when children are coping with something like this and they bring it up a lot, different adults have different words for handling it. Even if the message is the same, you know, it's like you hear different and putting it in book means everybody is using the same words. It's like the adults can agree ahead of time, you know, here's how we want this story to be remembered or here's how we want to explain it and put it in. And then a child can hear that same message happening over and over again. And it helps concretize it. It helps it become this tangible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because I think the roots of, there's a lot, I mean, I have a background in doing trauma therapy and there's, you know, a big part of trauma work is creating the trauma narrative. And literally there are part, there are treatments that literally have people who've gone through like horrific traumas when they're ready, write the story, literally write it or say it repeatedly in therapy as a way of creating this coherent narrative because we store traumatic events kind of in this, our brains do these weird things where like we store them in this really scattered way. It's not like, you know, usually when you and I have a memory and we can kind of play it back in our head, like we're watching a movie. And when scary things happen to us, when, when memories are stored, when we are in a state of fight or flight or distress, and that doesn't, that could be a capital T trauma. It could also be just distress in, you know, where if you're a child and you're dysregulated and you're remembering something, you're, or in your encoding a memory, you are storing that in this sort of fragmented way. And so creating the narrative, telling the story, making it, pulling it out of those fragments and putting all those fragments together in a really coherent narrative is part of consolidating those memories, making them feel less scary, making them feel less experiential so that we're not reliving them all the time. They're out of our body. They're in our, they're outside of us. And that's really like how we do a lot of trauma work. Mm-hmm. There was this little boy the other day in the threes who was having a hard day and he said to told me he said he missed his family. And I asked him, I can't remember what I asked him about that, but it turned out his brother was home with um, Pink Eye. He said something like, he has boogies in his eyes. And I was like, oh, I see this. Okay, I got it. And so I just drew a picture of his brother. I mean, just, a, I'm not good at drawing with, with his eyes, you know, with goop in his eyes. And it was, and he felt you could see his whole body relax because it was like he'd gotten it out, whatever he was worried about. And he just put the picture in his cubby and then that able enabled him to move on. And I wouldn't, I mean, obviously it's not traumatic to have a brother with pink eye, but it was, he was stuck in it. He was stuck in some way. And so it was hard for him to have a good day. And, and once we got it out, then he, yeah. Yes. And I think that just because they're strategies that we use with trauma doesn't mean that they aren't very, you know, you could pull those strategies out and use them in like very non-traumatic situations, (laughs) very day to day, but they help kids move out of a stuck thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's a really helpful reminder for parents. Like this isn't just exclusive to trauma. It's, it's, you can use it to move kids through the day or move kids out of a tough, a tough, sticky moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this has been so wonderful talking with you. Thank and you. 
definitely think people should check out the book. Sometimes you get what you want and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes too. But, um, and yeah, and I think obviously little, our downtown little school sounds like an awesome, awesome place. If I was still in Manhattan, it certainly be a place I'd want to know about. Um, but I, I, this is a delight talking to you. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure. I hope this episode helped give you some comfort and confidence if your child is about to start preschool. And honestly, many of these strategies, like building feelings of safety and security, work with older kiddos too. And as you just heard Meredith and me talk about, one of the best ways we can prepare is through work we do not with our child, but with ourselves. A simple first step parents can take to help their children strengthen their emotion regulation abilities and work through their big feelings is learning how to manage our own regulation. And that's why my workshop, Be the Calm in Your Child's Storm, How to Keep Your Cool When Your Child Loses Theirs, is all about you. I'll teach you simple but powerful steps to change the way your brain and body interpret your child's dysregulation. And I'll arm you with the tools you need to stay cool in the heat of the moment so you're able to help them calm down too. Head to drsarahbrenn.com and click the workshops tab to get instant access to the recording of my 90-minute workshop that will teach you the same therapeutic interventions I use with my patients to help them quiet their fight or flight response. That's drsarahbrenn.com. Thanks for listening and don't be a stranger.